Supreme Court Update Moore and Sweet 2018 SCC 52 During L&M's marriage, L purchased a term life insurance policy and designated M as revocable beneficiary. They later separated and entered into an oral agreement whereby M would pay all of the policy premiums and, in exchange, L would maintain M's beneficiary designation. Unbeknownst to M, L subsequently designated his new common-law spouse, R, as the irrevocable beneficiary of the policy. When L passed away, the proceeds were therefore payable to R and not to M. At the time of L's death, his estate had no significant assets. M, who had paid about $7,000 in policy premiums since separation, commenced an application regarding her entitlement to the $250,000 policy proceeds. The application's judge held that R had been unjustly enriched at M's expense and impressed the proceeds with a constructive trust in M's favor. The Court of Appeal allowed R's appeal and set aside the judgment of the application judge. Held. Justices Gascon and Rowe dissenting. The appeal should be allowed. Per Chief Justice Wagner and Justices Abella, Moldaver, Karakatsanis, Cote, Brown, and Martin. R was enriched, M was correspondingly deprived, and both the enrichment and deprivation occurred in the absence of a juristic reason. Therefore, a remedial constructive trust should be imposed for M's benefit. A constructive trust is understood primarily as an equitable remedy that may be imposed at the court's discretion. A proper equitable basis, such as a successful claim for an unjust enrichment, must first be found to exist. A plaintiff will succeed on the cause of action in unjust enrichment if he or she can show three elements. First, that the defendant was enriched. Second, that the plaintiff suffered a corresponding deprivation. And third, that the defendant's enrichment and the plaintiff's corresponding deprivation occurred in the absence of a juristic reason. Regarding the first element, the parties do not dispute the fact that R was enriched to the full extent of the insurance proceeds in the amount of 250000 by virtue of her right to receive them as the designated irrevocable beneficiary of L's policy. The second element focuses on what the plaintiff actually lost and whether that loss corresponds to the defendant's enrichment, such that the latter was enriched at the expense of the former. The measure of deprivation is not limited to the plaintiff's out-of-pocket expenditures or to the benefit taken directly from him or her. Rather, the concept of loss also captures a benefit that was never in the plaintiff's possession, but that the court finds would have accrued for his or her benefit had it not been received by the defendant instead. This element does not require that the disputed benefit be conferred directly by the plaintiff on the defendant. In this case, the extent of M's deprivation is not limited to the 7000 she paid in premiums. She stands deprived of the right to receive the entirety of the insurance proceeds, a value of $250,000. It is also clear that R's enrichment came at M's expense. Not only did M's payment of premiums make R's enrichment possible, but R's designation gave her a statutory right to receive the insurance proceeds. Because R received the benefit that otherwise would have accrued to M, the requisite correspondence exists. The former was enriched at the expense of the latter. To establish the third element, it must be demonstrated that both the enrichment and the corresponding deprivation occurred without a juristic reason. 
The juristic reason analysis proceeds in two stages. The first stage requires the plaintiff to demonstrate that defendant's retention of the benefit at the plaintiff's expense cannot be justified on the basis of any established categories of juristic reasons, such as disposition of law or statutory obligations. A plaintiff's claim will necessarily fail if a legislative enactment justifies the enrichment and corresponding deprivation. In this case, a beneficiary designation made pursuant to sections 190 sub 1 and 191 sub 1 of the Insurance Act does not provide juristic reasons for R's enrichment at M's expense. Nothing in the Insurance Act can be read as ousting the common law or equitable rights that persons other than the designated beneficiary may have in the policy proceeds. The legislature is presumed not to depart from the prevailing law without expressing its intention to do so with irresistible clearness. While the Insurance Act provides a mechanism by which beneficiaries become statutorily entitled to receive policy proceeds, no part of the Act operates with the necessary irrefutable clearness to preclude the existence of contractual or equitable rights in those proceeds once they have become paid to the named beneficiary. Furthermore, the Insurance Act provisions applicable to irrevocable beneficiary designations do not require either expressly or implicitly that a beneficiary keep the proceeds as against the plaintiff in an unjust enrichment claim who stands deprived of his or her prior contractual entitlement to claim the proceeds upon the insured's death. Accordingly, the irrevocable designation under the Act cannot constitute a juristic reason for ours enrichment at M's deprivation. Neither by direct reference nor by necessary implication does the Insurance Act either foreclose a third party who stands deprived of his or her contractual entitlement to claim insurance proceeds by successfully asserting an unjust enrichment claim against the designated beneficiary, revocable or irrevocable, or preclude the imposition of constructive trust in circumstances such as these. Therefore, no established category of juristic reason applies. Once the plaintiff has successfully demonstrated that no category of juristic reason applies, a prima facie case is established and the analysis proceeds to the second stage. At this stage, the defendant must establish some residual reason why the enrichment should be retained. Considerations such as the party's reasonable expectations and moral and policy-based arguments come into play. In the present case, it is clear that both parties expected to receive the proceeds of the life insurance policy. However, the residual considerations favor M. Given that her contribution towards the payment of premiums actually kept the policy alive and made R's entitlement to receive the proceeds upon L's death possible. Once each of the three elements of the cause of action in unjust enrichment is made out, the remedy is restitutionary in nature and can take one of two forms, personal or proprietary. A personal remedy is essentially a debt or a monetary obligation and can be viewed as the default remedy for unjust enrichment. In certain cases, however, the plaintiff may be awarded a remedy of a proprietary nature. The most persuasive and important proprietary remedy for unjust enrichment is the constructive trust. Courts will impress the disputed property with a constructive trust only if the plaintiff can establish that a personal remedy would be inadequate, and that there is a link between his or her contributions and the disputed property. Ordinarily, a personal award would be adequate in cases such as this one, where the property at stake is money. In the present case, however, the disputed insurance money has been paid into the court and is readily available to be impressed with a constructive trust. Moreover, M's payment of the premiums 
was causally connected to the maintenance of the policy under which R was enriched. A constructive trust to the full extent of the proceeds should therefore be imposed in M's favor. Per Justices Gascon and Rowe dissenting. There is agreement with the majority that M has established a claim in unjust enrichment on these facts, and therefore that a constructive trust should be imposed. M had a contract with L to be maintained the named beneficiary of his life insurance policy while she paid the premiums. However, this contract does not create a proprietary or equitable interest in the policy's proceeds, and simply being named as a beneficiary does not give one a right in the proceeds before the death of the insured. The right to claim the proceeds only crystallizes upon the insured's death. Further, as a revocable beneficiary, M had no right to contest L's redesignation of R as an irrevocable beneficiary, outside of a claim against L for breach of contract. Thus, at the time of L's death, the only rights that M possessed in relation to the life insurance contract were her contractual rights. While M would have a claim against L's estate for breach of contract, the estate's lack of assets has rendered any such recourse fruitless. Instead, M's claim is to reverse the purported unjust enrichment of R. In an action for unjust enrichment, a plaintiff must show that their deprivation corresponds to the defendant's enrichment. The correspondence between the deprivation and the enrichment, while seemingly formalistic, is fundamental. Correspondence is the connection between the parties, a plus and a minus as adverse manifestations of the same event, that uniquely identifies the plaintiff as the proper person to seek restitution against a particular defendant. In this case, it is clear that but for M's payments, the policy would have lapsed, and but for L's breach of contract, M would have been beneficiary at the time of death. But these facts are not enough to establish that the deprivation and enrichment are corresponding. R's enrichment was not at the expense of M because R's enrichment is not dependent on M's deprivation. What R received, a statutory entitlement to proceeds, is different from M's deprivation, the inability to enforce her contractual rights. They are not two sides of the same coin. Even if a corresponding deprivation could be established, M's claim in unjust enrichment would fail at the first stage of the juristic reason analysis because the Insurance Act establishes a juristic reason for R's enrichment. Section 191 sub 1 of the Insurance Act provides that an insured may designate an irrevocable beneficiary under a life insurance policy and thereby provide special protections to that beneficiary. From the moment an irrevocable beneficiary is designated, they have the right to the policy itself. The insurance money is not subject to the control of the insured or to the claims of his or her creditors, and the beneficiary must consent to any subsequent changes to beneficiary designation. As it is undisputed that R was the validly designated irrevocable beneficiary of the policy, she is entitled to the proceeds free of the claims of L's creditors. The fact that M had an oral agreement with L for the proceeds of the policy pursuant to which she paid its premiums does not undermine the presence of this juristic reason. As M's rights are contractual in nature, she is a creditor of L's estate and thus, by the provisions of the Insurance Act, has no claim to the proceeds. The Insurance Act explicitly protects irrevocable beneficiaries from the claims of the deceased creditors and provides that the insurance proceeds do not form part of the insured's estate. 
Thus, the Insurance Act precludes the existence of contractual rights in those insurance proceeds. The Insurance Act's legislative history further supports R's retention of the insurance proceeds, notwithstanding M's claim. The provisions of the Insurance Act were designed to protect the interests of beneficiaries in retaining the proceeds and provide no basis whatsoever for a person paying the premiums to assume she would have any eventual proceeds, and provide no basis whatsoever for a person paying the premiums to assume she would have any claim to the eventual proceeds. The Insurance Act is deliberately indifferent to the source of the premium payments and renders the actions of the payers irrelevant as far as the beneficiaries are concerned. In immunizing beneficiaries from the claims of the insured's creditors, the Insurance Act does not distinguish between types of creditors. Creditors of the insured's estate simply do not have a claim to the insurance proceeds. There is no basis to carve out a special class of creditor who would be exempt from the clear wording of the Insurance Act. Neither M's contributions to the policy, nor her contract with L, are sufficient to take her outside of the comprehensive scheme and grant her special and preferred status. Even if the Insurance Act did not establish a juristic reason for R's enrichment, the policy considerations at the second stage of the juristic reason analysis weigh against allowing M's claim of unjust enrichment. It is an unfortunate reality that a person's death is sometimes accompanied by litigation that can tie up funds that the deceased intends to support loved ones for a significant period of time, adding financial hardship to personal tragedy. In an attempt to ensure that life insurance proceeds could be free from such strife, the Ontario legislator empowered policyholders to designate an irrevocable beneficiary under Section 191 Sub 1 of the Insurance Act. Such a designation ensures that the proceeds can be dispersed free from claims against the estate, giving certainty to the insured, insurer, and beneficiary alike. This provision should be given full effect.